Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Beyond, you know, working in whatever your parents did type of working, the, the industrial revolution really sort of began the idea that you would get a job, right? That you wouldn't just be whatever your parents were or work on the farm that you inherited or, or what have you. That was the beginning. And that was also the beginning because there were so many people coming to that job. That was the beginning of management, right? As a, as a profession and a, and a set of tools, et cetera. And it was based off this idea that the majority of people didn't need to think. They just needed to act, right? We just need to teach you how to do this repetitive motion in the factory and then pay you to do that repetitive motion for eight hours a day. Right. And then around, uh, you know, mid 1900s, we shifted from, I mean, Peter Drucker really coined this term. We shifted from industrial work to knowledge work. Right. And what happened was a lot of those tools we drug with us from the factory to the office, the tools of how we managed people. We drug with us from the factory to the office and they worked because the work was still repetitive. It was just repetitive on paper instead of a giant trying to assemble a car. Right. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this shift from e- even more so where knowledge work has really become creative work. I mean, this was the rant I went on in my first book that everybody has to exercise creativity because even in a normal, you know, a normal quote unquote office job, you have to solve problems, come up with solutions, create ideas. You have to exercise that muscle in a way that we haven't had to do even 20 years ago. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. So, you know, I have known about you for quite some time. I mean, you introduced me to the wonderful folks at the Speakers Bureau that we are both uh, members of, and you've been a longtime listener, but I also know a lot about your work. But before we get there, um, if you've been listening lately, you know that I've been changing up the beginning of the show. So yeah, I know. I don't know how to plan for this, actually. <laughs> exactly. Which is what makes it that much more interesting. So I want to start by asking, what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that impact the choices that you have ended up making with your life and your career? Okay, so with the obvious, like I, I'm fully recognizing my own bias and my own tendency to edit one's personal history to make a more entertaining narrative. Um, I was not, I was not all that popular in high school. I, I, my social group was the uh, literary magazine and the newspaper, um, which is appropriate now because I, I write books and I publish a podcast and all of that kind of stuff. So it was kind of, I was always the tinkerer. Like I was the one that figured out how to turn the literary magazine into like a folded actual booklet instead of, you know, just a bunch of pages stapled together at the end of the year. Um, and that kind of stuff. And it, it spoke to that idea that I, I mean, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be like the next Hemingway with hopefully a little bit better life outcome. <laughs> uh, 
or, or, or that kind of thing. I was going to go write the great American novel. I went off to college for, for that reason. So I was always involved in, uh, in the more literary, uh, little groups. So I was not a, I was not an athlete other than the fact that I did martial arts my whole life. Um, still do actually. Um, but I don't know that we can call that athlete in the way that like gets girls or gets, <laughs> gets you on like, you know, fr- now I, now I live in the middle of the country where, you know, Friday night football is huge. Uh, it was never a part of anything like that. I, I actually, I worked out with a football team once and then they showed me the schedule and I was like, nah, I don't have time for that. <laughs> I've, I've been down that football road. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is, is that you're exposed to, you know, this craft of writing at a, a very, very early age. And, I guess, you know, having been part of a high school newspaper and sort of seeing, you know, the evolution of the Internet and the evolution of technology and the democratization of creativity, how has that changed your perspective uh, from then until now uh, on this entire idea of the craft of writing? Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's an interesting you point out the democratization of creativity thing. So I went, I was in high school in, the, I'm, I'm going to date myself. I was in high school in the late nineties, right? When computers started coming with Adobe page maker, at least educational computers and that kind of stuff. And so, I, I mean, I really was at the tail, uh, at the very beginning of, of the upswing, right? Um, we weren't, I mean, like live journal was the blogging platform of, of the age, but it was more that idea that I could use something like PageMaker, um, which now, I mean, the technology inside of PageMaker is in Microsoft Word and, and Mac pages, uh, you know, everywhere, but I could use something like that to, and a photocopy machine to lay out something that looked awfully close to a real book type of thing. To some extent, I think that gave me the confidence to realize like the tools are beginning to be available for anyone who's willing to to put in the work, right? And that's why later when I was in grad school and started a podcast and all that kind of stuff, it was the exact same thing. Suddenly the audio realm, what used to be reserved for people who had a ton of money to either buy their way on the radio waves or like work their way up the chain to get a a morning show or something like that. Suddenly anybody could do it if you could put in the time to figure it out. So you know, I kind of was at the very beginning of that in high school. And I think that's always sort of affected me. Um, this idea that if I just, if I can figure it out and I'm willing to, to actually put in the time and grind towards it, I can figure out how to do this. The interesting thing is a lot of people who I think came from an age before that or an age after that, they can see that anybody can do it. They just can't see that anybody can do it if they're willing to pay their dividends, put in their time, all of that sort of thing. It's really kind of interesting. I've helped a lot of people start a blog or start a podcast or do something to try and become a thought leader in whatever area they're passionate about. And almost all of them flame out and lose, lose the fire, decide to stop doing it after like six months or three months because they're not, you know, internet famous. And it's really kind of interesting. I, I wonder if it has to do with that exact time that like it was, it was available, but it was difficult you know, when I, when I was trying to do it. And so, because I just got used to the idea that even when things are readily available, they're still going to be difficult. Uh, I've never really lost that. Even now, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't do the layout for my own books or anything like that. I work with a traditional publisher, but even now I'm willing to say like, anybody can do it. It's just going to be difficult. You just have to be willing to, to put in the time. You know, it's really interesting because, I mean, you and I share, I think, that same timeline of uh, being in high school in the late 90s and being sort of at the infancy of the Internet. And, uh, you know, I I happened to be in Berkeley while a good amount of this stuff was being invented. uh, And it never occurred to me to use it as a tool for creating things. Uh, I always thought I had to be on the back end, you know, as a programmer. But it was only when I got to see that it could be made to publish and to create work that could be shared with the world publicly that I became much more interested in it. But I think that the the more sort of interesting thread to me is the one of time and the willingness to put it in. Uh, 
I'm curious, you know, what do you think it is that enables certain people, I mean, yourself, for example, to persist throughout this, um, despite not having an external result? And, you know, what what is it that causes the people who quit in three months or whenever it is to quit? Because uh, you've probably seen it from so many different perspectives. Like you now have a perspective also, which we, you know, we haven't talked about yet uh, as an educator, which, you know, you and I both know there's no way in hell we're going to get out of this conversation without talking about education. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just curious, like, what have you seen as that sort of X factor that determines the person who doesn't quit from the one who does? Uh, I mean, two things. The, the first, let's be honest, is a tinge of narcissism. Like, <laughs> I mean, but, but you really do. You have to believe that you actually have something the world hasn't seen yet in yeah. order to keep screaming when no one's paying attention. Sure. You know, and, and, and maybe the scream turns into a conversation and that's how you get the snowball or, or what have you. But that, that idea that you really have to do, you have to have a faith in the differentness, the uniqueness, or the value of what you're, you're doing, even when the world's going, no, that's not valuable at all. And it's, it's not that the world is right. They're, they're totally wrong. It's just really hard to keep believing in yourself without maybe that tinge of narcissism. The, the other thing, and this is what I was kind of getting at before, is you know, we started playing around with all of those tools when they were available, but there weren't like $500 online courses that could teach you how to make millions developing your online course. Like there weren't a lot of guides that made it seem so simple. It was always going to be a difficult thing you had to figure out on your own. And to some extent, you know, I, I, it's like the worst thing that ever happened to Lego was they put the instructions in all of the sets and suddenly you just followed along instead of figuring it out as you went. And I think there's real value in that playing around with tools, scrapping stuff. I mean, when, when I started to really build the, the new the, what I built kind of my life and career around now we tried a lot of stuff that just bombed royally. I mean, like I tried to do a, a, a rip off of change this, the uh, really cool ebook publisher and it bombed royally and all sorts of stuff that I hope the internet one day forgets, but is still out there somewhere. <laughs> uh, and it came from that idea that like, there's, there's no instruction manual for this. You've just yeah. got to tinker and figure it out. Okay. So I, I think this is a, a really, really fascinating subject. One that I, I even touched on in my own book, which is this idea of, of a compass more than a map, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to to actually take a course. Um, I, I think in, in some ways, you know, courses have done us a disservice for the very reason that you're talking about, because it's kind of like, here's your, you know, a blog or book in a box. And if you follow these instructions, you will get the result that I am promising, which it turns out is not always true. Um, in fact, it's it's very rarely true. In fact, I think the, the more interesting outcomes often are the byproduct of people who are not rigid about following the instructions to the letter because, um, I you know, and I, I've probably shared this a handful of times on, on different interviews. I remember, you know, the, the course I took said interview one person as a way to get traffic to your blog. And my interpretation was start a weekly series, interview multiple people, and, you know, make it a regular thing. And that was in 2009. <laughs> so the thing is that, you know, if, if we don't let these instructions be open to interpretation, we actually cut off the possibility of interesting outcomes. Um, and I, I think that we put way too much weight on what an authority says we should do in order to get the result that they say that we will get if we listen to what they say. Well, I think the other thing, too, is that the authority who's telling you to do it is telling you this is how I did it. But the mere fact that they did it that way ruins that path, right? <laughs> with, with all respect to the people who got seven figure book deals from the New York Times because they started a blog and suddenly it was getting hundreds of, that's never going to, like that ship has sailed, right? And then the new one is podcasting, right? Podcasting is what blogging was in, in 2005, but that ship's never going to sail either because you're already sort of past it, right? I'll, I'll tell you what, what I do. I mean, I actually still buy a lot of 
on, I probably buy two to three online courses a year from different stuff. Here's how to launch a product. Here's how to launch a book. Here's how to launch whatever. Uh, you, in fact, you and I are in that same course on how to launch a book. And, and I've found the most valuable thing is, is, is the content is great. But what I sort of feel like is I buy the expensive tier of the course so that I can start emailing and Facebook messaging and texting the, the person who created the content. Mm-hmm. And it's the asking them questions about stuff that gives me far more value out of the whole thing than does the actual course content. Because the course content is a map, right? Yeah. But what the actual, you know, the fact that I spent a thousand plus dollars on this thing sort of gives me the right to ask questions of a Lewis and Clark type guide. So now I have my compass, but I also have a guide I can I can call up and ask questions. And that's more valuable to me to just tinker and ask questions than to just follow the course to the letter. Because I'll be honest, the course isn't going to work anymore because by the time somebody gets to the point where they can turn around and go, look how popular I am by doing this, I'll teach you how to do the same thing. That medium is already sort of passe. Okay. So you, you hit one of my hot buttons. Um, because yeah, I, I've, I've, to me, I, I, I jokingly said, you know, my, the other way that my book could be titled is like an epic rant on exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> um, which in a lot of ways it is, you know, uh, and yet I'm really curious, not about how you avoid it, but why you think people are so hell bent on still following a map. Like, why is it that people are not willing to go out and experiment and fall in their face and be wrong? Well, I mean, I think to remember that tinge of narcissism thing. Uh, yeah. I think most people don't have that. I think most pe- <laughs> most people are um, are scared, and most people are lack a confidence that they can actually do this thing. Um, you know, so most people need someone to to sell them on the idea that no, you really can do this. And, you know, the, the productive narcissists sort of inherit the earth because they already believe they can do it. They just don't know how. Like, I, you know, I fully believe I can conquer the world. I just don't know how I'm going to do it yet. Um, and, and, and I have to obviously leverage this with the saying, like, there is a level of narcissism that gets wholly unproductive um, and is only good for totally disrupting, you know, all, all sorts of news coverage and whatever you can say about what's going on in the U.S. right now. But so there is an unproductive level for sure. But I think there's a there's an inherent sort of self-efficacy is probably even a better term than narcissism that that is a personality trait. And some people have it and some people need to be sold it in order to get them to part with their money. And that's what that's you can make a whole lot more money selling confidence to people than you can actually finding the people who are going to figure it out anyway and going, hey, I can make your life a little bit easier. Let me let me help you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've said this before, like, I think every form of information or attempt to be, you know, uh, transformed basically results in three groups of people, which is like the people who will just keep looking for the next thing, the people who might change because of what they bought and the people who never needed the thing in the first place. Right, right. And you know, it's sort of like, so I have two, I have two kids. And one of the things I figured out is it's like the, the parenting books don't make you a better parent. The fact that you buy so many of them indicates you were already going to be a good parent. (laughs) That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, seeing as the fact that I don't have kids, I'm not sure I have anything particularly valuable to add to that, (laughs) but, uh, let's do this. Uh, You know, I'm really curious. I mean, you know, you, you started out by, by talking about this notion of sort of becoming the, the next sort of great American writer, you know, Hemingway minus the life circumstances, um, and I, I'm curious kind of, you know, what the college experience was and the fact that, you know, you actually ultimately ended up in academia, um, which is sort of an interesting, you know, uh, detour in my mind. So how did that happen? Like, how well, let's go, let's call it an accident, not a detour, okay. but it's Fair weird. Enough. It is being a professor is the only accidental thing in my whole career. Everything else followed the master plan beautifully, um, except the being a professor part, which is different because most of the time, you know, 
you look at your Jonah Burgers and Adam Grants and your your professors who also write popular press books, and you think like, oh, they they did this whole professor thing, and then that no, this was sort of a detour. What what happened with with me was I always knew I was going to be a writer. Uh, I was I was in theater mostly because my sister was actually still in theater. Um, she went to Boston Conservatory of Music, studied theater. She now works uh, for a theater company in D.C., like big into theater. And, you know, mom only had one car. So you're going wherever your older sister is going during summer when you're not in school. Right. So I did a lot of shows and that's when I knew like I liked speaking. Right. The thing is, when you're when you're 17, 18 years old, the only genres of literature, you know, are sort of young adult, And then the, the crap you have to read in English class. Yeah. Right. So I knew I wanted to do that. I went to college thinking those were the only options. And then around this time was around, it was also around the time I, I owe him a debt of gratitude. It was around the time Gladwell got really popular in terms of books and really broke open. He wasn't the first social science writer, but really broke open the genre. And that fascinated me. And that led me to read people like Dan Pink and the Heath brothers and that sort of thing. And that's what really, really fascinated me and got me to say like, this is, this is actually what I want to do. I'm fascinated with this. So this is what I want to do. So I went to grad school for that. I went to grad school for organizational psychology and um, around that time started building a platform of, you know, basically I got this crazy idea before podcasting was cool that if I started a podcast that interviewed these people, one day maybe people would think I'd be worth writing a book like these people, right? And and it worked. It took like five years, but it worked. Sure. Um, so that was always the goal. What happened actually was I kept going through it and the plan was always kind of do that and maybe teach as an adjunct professor, teach one class type of thing. Uh, and then my alma mater actually called me and said, hey, you know, we, we had this person retire. We know you live in the area. Would you want to come in and cover some of his classes while we find someone? And it's been five plus years since that happened. And, and uh, I still enjoy it. I still find a way to balance both of them. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the day will come when I can't, but for right now, because I can kind of keep both balls in the air, I, I still do it and it's a lot of fun, but it was a, it was a total accident. Never part of the plan to be a full-time professor. Okay. So that raises, um, you know, a question about moments of serendipity, right? Uh, you know, you have, you have this moment where something grabs your attention, something that clearly intrigues you enough to go and pursue it in grad school. Uh, I, you know, maybe I had moments like that in college, but I can't honestly think of more than maybe one day in the four years at Berkeley where I thought that, and it was in an entrepreneurship class and you know, I didn't have the grades to get into the business school. And I hated most of the classes in the business school that I took. They were pretty mind numbing. Uh, so I guess, you know, you know, from the perspective of, of a, a teacher, like, have you recognized moments like that in your own students and what causes them? Like what brings about a moment like that in somebody's life? Well, and here's the weird thing is from the, from the outside looking in, I, I definitely see that. Let's say I have a classroom of 25 people. There are probably five people who are, are going through that or are thinking about the content in a way that's actually going to make a sort of a lasting effect on them. The, the hard part is figuring out who they are. You know, like I had a, a student in one of my classes, actually it was my very first full, full-time semester at the university. I taught an organizational behavior class and I, I went under this rant about um, grit, which obviously now is hugely popular, Angela Duckworth, et cetera. But this was right when the study came out and then he got fascinated with it and he got fascinated with Angela and he ended up joining Teach for America and now he's doing a, he he taught for TFA for two or three years and now he's doing a PhD in educational psychology. And, you know, it was, it was a real sort of moment in that. But in that same classroom, there were probably two or three other people who were fascinated with something and never followed through. And that's, right. that's really the interesting thing to, to go back to our prior conversation is from the outside looking in, it is so difficult to know 
who those people are. I mean, they all come to you really excited with a new idea and you don't know until six or 12 months later, which one actually had the, for lack of a better term, grit to follow through on that serendipitous moment and which one was just fascinated with this thing and then it flitted away. Hmm. So as a, a teacher, what, what would you say has been one of your greatest failures? Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I struggle with now is, uh, so much of the educational system is, uh, based on the idea that you sort of lecture from the front and you, you're the one giving the knowledge and my current schedule, my speaking schedule and, and all of that sort of thing demands that there are a decent number of days when I'm not in the classroom. And because I sort of grew up in that lecture from the front age, I am, am really struggling and sometimes fa- failing miserably at designing a, a 12-week course that incorporates that but is also experiential enough to really even create, I mean, arguably what I'm trying to do is create more valuable experiences that I've designed for the days I'm not there because I'm off somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm awful at that. I'm still trying to figure out kind of how to do that. But that's, that's probably one of, one of the big ones inside the classroom is, is getting reports back after, you know, because it's weird because students always love like, oh, I don't have to be in class today. But getting them to sort of take whatever experience I've designed more seriously than showing up in class and then actually having that be a sort of a transformational experience. We don't, a lot of us don't know, I'll be honest, don't know how to do that because a lot of higher education are people who learned a ton about their subject and then we just set them free in the classroom. And the only thing you, you know how to do is what you did before, how you, you know, learned in class. And so you're designing those things. And that, that's a, a, an honest struggle that I think this is going to parlay, be our inevitable segue into a conversation around <laughs> yeah. education as a whole. Yeah. Uh, because I think we know that needs to change. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I think the majority of us don't know how to change it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, so what what is it that... Um, I mean, everybody knows this, you know, I mean, Adam, Adam Grant and I had a lengthy chat about this. There, there's a couple of things that have come up in my mind that I, you know, in some ways I find asinine. Um, and in some ways I just get my dad is a college professor. So you can imagine how he feels about my views on education. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that blew my mind was talking to Salim Ismail from Singularity University. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, so you guys are tasking people to start a nonprofit initiative or a technology company or startup that solves a problem that impacts a billion people within a decade. But you're not on the list of places where somebody might consider going to school when they're graduating from high school, even though their impact on society might be more significant than it would if they went to even a four-year college like a Berkeley or a Harvard. And I asked him, he said, well, one, we're not accredited. And the reason they can't get accredited is because they update their curriculum in real time. Right. So the real question is, you know, I think personally, we have to, one, address the question of, is this really for everybody? Um, And, you know, you have a front row seat to it. Are there people that are in your classrooms who shouldn't be there? I mean, overall, overall, yes. I mean, the, the... We, we never, higher education was never designed to be for everybody. Essentially what happened is, and and I feel weird saying this because I love the idea that it is now open to everybody in all socioeconomic classes for Mm -hmm. sure. But even inside of, even if you take just like the richest of the rich, it's not for all of them, right? Um, the, the challenge is it's, you, you don't know who those people are, right? right? We, we do in admissions, we, we use all of these weird proxies for, uh, who are the people who are intrinsically emo- motivated enough to have an amazing college experience? But uh, I mean, it's clearly it's failed us. And and I mean, to me, the the problem to me is not that is it for everybody? Is it not for everybody? The the problem to me is that we have three thousand universities, uh, colleges and universities in the United States, and they are all trying to be Harvard, right? And the ranking system rewards them for being for trying to be Harvard, and right. the accreditation systems rank them for trying to be Harvard, and that's great. But like, I, you know, it's weird because I teach in a business school, right. and when we talk about strategy, we always talk about low cost versus differentiation, and no one's trying to differentiate, right? Mm-hmm. The the only schools 
that are trying to differentiate are the singularity universities, right? Who can't get accreditation and, or there's a couple, a couple schools that, that have actually said like, no, we, we do this like St. John's college in Annapolis, right? Mm-hmm. There's only one degree that they offer. They're a very small school. And they, they basically say like, you have to be this specific type of person to even want to go here. And I think that to some extent is, is the solution. Their differentiation creates a system where you're already, if you want to go there, you're already the right type of person for that system. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and we don't do that. We're, we're all trying to create a broad liberal arts curriculum that, that tapers down into a major that competes based on uh, entry level SAT or ACT scores and grade point averages and selectivity and all of this stuff that's what the rankings are based on. And you know what we need are three thousand universities that all specialize in a different thing, so that the only people who are showing up and submitting applications are people who are sort of already right for that school. So why is that not happening? I mean, there's you know, I mean, it's it's really like one of those things that blows my mind. Uh, you you know that that should be happening. So what is preventing that from happening? Um, you know, I mean, the thing is that we have to admit, like, let's be honest, the results of this aren't spectacular. Uh, I know because I got I got out of graduate school and, and half the time, you know, people ask, what's the Pepperdine MBA like? I'm like, it's a really expensive surf lesson. <laughs> you know, I, I, I honestly believe that. And, you know, like people ask me, would you do it again? I say, no, not at all. In fact, I highly recommend against it. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, again, like I said, I've got a dad that's a college professor and I'm talking to you. So like, what is it going to take to change? More importantly, I can sit here and bitch about it all day, which, you know, I've gotten hate mail about in the past. Um, but rather than bitch about it, what is the solution? Well, I, so uh, it's, it's going to be a long process, right? Okay. The you, you, higher education universities have been around for, we measure it in thousands, not in hundreds or even tens, but it's starting to change. I mean, you look at you look at schools like Babson College, which made a decision, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago to be the number one school for entrepreneurship in the country. And that's the only thing that they teach. They, I think they have a, a bachelor's and I think they might have an MBA, but you can only come if you want to study entrepreneurship. And that means that they can, they only attract those students and, and there's proof that it's working. And to some extent, conservatories that do music and dance and those sort of things have always worked in that model. Mm-hmm. I, I think it just takes more and more visibility among those success stories to get people the courage to do it. I think also we're butting up against this idea that uh, because of the democratization of information, you're you might not be able to stay in business unless you decide to differentiate. Like in, right. in some in some regards, the market is going to do that. But we have a, a highly complicated system that subsidized by the federal government as long as you continue to look like the status quo because that's what they have to judge you by and all that yeah. sort of thing that it's it's going to be a very long uh, cycle of change but I can point to glimmers of hope that it already is okay uh, the, the sad thing about it is that that means that it'll be in good shape by the time my kids kids go to college <laughs> um, what I do for my own kids that leaves me baffled yeah wow um, so many questions still uh, come from this what are your thoughts on the entire student loan debt situation, uh, given where you're standing at? You know, I mean, here's here's the thing that I think about this. There's only so long that you can keep lending and people are not paying it back until the whole thing caves in. Like, I, that, that I, has to happen at some point. I think the student debt crisis has the same cause as the online courses on how to sell online courses crisis. Uh, I think we've done a terrible job of selling to people who may or may not, who who should or should not be there, that they can be there and they can do this if they're just willing to, 
you know, pay all of this and, and no, no money down, et cetera. It suffers from all, you know, everything that happened with the housing bubble in 2008, to some extent, we kind of do because of the ease and availability of loans. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm, I'm going to show my political leanings here and say that I don't think it's the college's fault. I actually think it's the fault of the, the banks and federal government that subsidize it and make it so easy to get that credit. Right. Um, because I mean, think back to our, our, our beginning part of the conversation. One of the challenges is it's, it's never, complicated and difficult. It's just hard, right? It's simple, but it's hard to figure out how to do anything. And the problem is we make it too easy. Yeah. And that, that brings in a bunch of people from all, from all socioeconomic classes, right? This isn't, this isn't just, we should screen out people who can't afford it. I don't mean that at all. I mean, we should find a way to screen out people who aren't willing to put in the work to actually get the value out of it. And one way to do that is by making the cost hard to do. And we haven't done that. We've, we've sort of responded to uh, a price increase with easier subsidies, which led to another price increase, which led to more subsidies. And that that cycle has to collapse at some point for sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I have my student loan debt. What I can tell you is that you are never educated uh, in reality about how much money you're truly spending, like or how much you are taking out there. It's a very it's, the whole process is literally glossed over. It's like a 30 minute conversation with somebody at a school and then there's a check in your bank account. Right. And, has been paid. and and we never have. I mean, so my, my wife is a is a physician. And so mm-hmm. we we have a lot of student loan debt. But when you're at that level, it's really easy to go, oh, but it's OK, because we can point to this. Yeah. Right. And we and we've never pointed to the person and been like, yeah, you're an 18th century English literature major. You probably shouldn't you should find a way to pay for this as you go. If this is really your passion, right? I, I fully believe you can have a fulfilling, profitable life as an 18th century English literature major, but it's going to be hard. And to the extent that it's going to be hard, we should also make getting the, the degree hard. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. You want to be an accountant? Like, great. Those that pays really well. And so here you go. Right. And you're going to get a great uh, return on it, et cetera. But kind of the harder it is to build a life, we should probably look at college as that thing that helps weed out the people who aren't going to do that anyway. I mean, to some extent, I think that's the reason why such a high percentage of people don't even work in the field that they studied in right. uh, because we made it so easy to be a major in that. And then they figured out how hard that was and honestly chose something easier. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a good way of looking at it, which I, I think actually really makes a, a perfect segue to start talking about the work that you have done uh, around this new book, because what is the next natural progression is, is work. Um, right. So, you know, I mean, I, I think part of what drew me to it was I have not fit into the traditional working system, you know, in a way that made me thrive, not even close. And so, you know, part of me, there is anyone else. So there's well, that. And, and, you know, so part of me wonders like, wow, if I went back now, being the person that I am, having you know done everything that I have, would I thrive within that same system? Because I kind of know how to work it now. So let, let's talk about sort of the changes that we are seeing in the working world and where we're headed. Like, I think the, the big question maybe that comes from my mind after reading this book is what is the future of work really going to look like? Yeah. So um, to, to answer that question, let's look at the past of work, yeah. right? So, so beyond, you know, working in whatever your parents did type of working the the industrial revolution really sort of began the idea that you would get a job right that you wouldn't just be whatever your parents were or work on the farm that you inherited or or what have you that was the beginning and that was also the beginning because there were so many people coming to that job that was the beginning of management 
right? As a, as a profession and a, and a set of tools, et cetera. And it was based off this idea that the majority of people didn't need to think, they just needed to act, right? We just need to teach you how to do this repetitive motion in the factory and then pay you to do that repetitive motion for eight hours a day. Right. And then around, uh, you know, mid 1900s, we shifted from, I mean, Peter Drucker really coined this term. We shifted from industrial work to knowledge work. Right. And what happened was a lot of those tools we drug with us from the factory to the office, the tools of how we managed people. We drug with us from the factory to the office and they worked because the work was still repetitive. It was just repetitive on paper instead of a giant trying to assemble a car. Right. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this shift from even more so where knowledge work has really become creative work. I mean, this was the rant I went on in my first book that everybody has to exercise creativity because even in a normal, you know, a normal quote unquote office job, you have to solve problems, come up with solutions, create ideas. You have to exercise that muscle in a way that we haven't had to do even 20 years ago. Right, that everybody kind of has to exercise this, and the way that we, the way that we manage work changes, the hours that we we need changes. Right, when there's no factory, we don't need to make sure people are there from eight to five; they can be there whenever. Um, so that brings with it a lot of work. But at the at the root idea of it, of these changes in work, is this idea that more and more people are tasked with solving problems, coming up with ideas, you know, creating solutions, work that requires they exercise that creative muscle, than work that just requires that they exercise their physical muscles. Mm-hmm. So walk us through the framework of the book and sort of what has been revealed um, in your research throughout this process uh, about, you know, what organizations are like. And then I, I think the, the other piece of this is where are you seeing resistance to uh, some of your ideas? Yeah. So under management covers a, a bunch of different ideas that at the core, uh, the sort of the thesis of the book is that the great leaders don't focus on innovating products. They innovate the factory, right? So even in the industrial age, a guy named Frederick Taylor came along with new ideas about how to run a factory and it changed the world. And the companies and ideas that are profiled in the book are the ones I think are sort of the future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they've done experimentations on how we work as teams how we uh, work as individuals, how we pay people, um, even how we're sort of structured. And we point to what those changes are. I mean, one of the biggest ones, I think, is this idea that for the, for the longest time, I mean, you probably had this when you were in your last corporate job, before you found out that you were fundamentally unemployable. <laughs> you know, we, we used to call a team, we used to call a team whoever reported to that manager, right? Yeah. So, you know, who's your manager? Sue. All right, well, you're Sue's team. Well, I mean, not really, because there are, five other people who don't do what I do on my team. Like the last, the last job in corporate America I had, I was on a sales team, right? And so we had nine of us that all answered the same manager. So we were a team, but we all competed in the bonus pool with each other, right? So we're not a team because I want to crush them, right? Uh So we have that idea that the org chart kind of determined who was on what team. And that, that came from the idea that down, we needed to make downward communication really easy. If we needed to make changes to the assembly line, we needed to make changes to the system, it was easy to do it when you just had this hierarchical boxes and lines relationship that we're all used to. Well, it turns out now the people who are on the front lines actually solving the problems, who are doing the work, et cetera, have a, almost a better reception on how the market and the competitive environment is changing, that upward communication becomes more important. And, and as far as teams, it becomes more important to kind of rotate them around, to have people who are working together for a time on a project, then disbanding back into the larger network of the organization, and then uh, forming new teams, et cetera. And I look at a lot of actually scientific research from, um, believe it or not, from Broadway mm-hmm. on this idea that the best teams are actually temporary. Like I, I say it like this a lot of times. We always say that 
you're the average of the five people you hang out with most, but it turns out that you shouldn't be hanging out with those people for you know longer than 18 months or so. And then you should find a couple new people to bring onto your team so that you have new ideas, new thinking, your norms are kind of broken down and rebuilt. That constant refreshing actually helps stimulate the creativity, the ability to solve problems, come up with ideas, et cetera, that you actually need to do the day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> Sorry, I'm catching my breath there. That no, no, a, no worries. Keep going. My if, if, you, if you have more, keep going. No, 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 I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Um, so I, I guess in, in my mind, you know, the question that comes to mind is how do we prepare for this? Like if I am, you know, uh, a potential employee, like thinking about entering the workforce, how do I make myself marketable in a situation or for, for the future of work? So, I mean, the, the first thing is to get really clear on what culture inside of organizations are like. And then also to get like when, when you're doing the interview to the extent that you can, I would be trying to talk to uh, the peers, the people that you'd be working with. A lot of our interview systems are, in fact, I have a chapter on this too, the idea of hiring as a team are designed around the idea that you interview the manager and the manager selects the right person for that position. And all of those assumptions are based on the idea that all we're going to do is train that person to do the same repetitive task over and over again. And therefore, the manager is the only one who needs to decide competence. Well, it turns out in this new age of work, so much of your ability to be productive is dependent on your team. I mean, I think about even the work that you do, right? And and Unmistakable might not have uh, a lot of people who are, that's their full-time job, but you've got this huge team-like network of people that allow you to do your best work. And without them, you wouldn't be able to do nearly as well as you are. Well, that's a hugely important question that you have to ask is not just, um, do I like this company because of the products they make, but do I want to work in this culture? And even do I want to work with this specific team? Because so much of that is going to affect whether or not you're able to do your best work or whether or not you're actually sort of crushed by the people around you, et cetera. What, um, what, if any, has been sort of pushback on, on you and, and some of these ideas? Like you've seen it in some organizations. I'm just curious, like what the sort of opposition has said to some of these ideas. Yeah. So, so one idea in particular gets a lot of pushback and then there's sort of an overall, um, pushback. The, the idea that gets a lot of pushback is I have a whole chapter in under management on salary transparency. Uh-huh. The idea that we actually do better when everybody knows what everybody gets paid. And, and there's a simple reason for that. And it actually is the, the pushback is always people are afraid that if we let everybody know what everybody gets paid, they're going to be comparing themselves to each other. They're going to be mad because somebody's overpaid, et cetera. Um, and that's true. And they do that even when there's not salary transparency, right? Mm-hmm. My advocating for transparency is based on a lot of research and a lot of practical examples from small companies to companies as big as Whole Foods, where everybody knows what everybody gets paid is that people are already doing that. And when you give them the actual you know, sort of raw data on here's how we determine salaries, here's how we determine who is productive, et cetera, here are the metrics on which you'll be measured that matter. People then, if they have problems, they have problems with the system and it creates a conversation around how to, how to create a system that better rewards the most productive things. It's not a, an interpersonal backbiting anymore. It's a, I don't think this is fair because this element of my work isn't getting represented in this formula and we change the formula so we can actually make that change. Um, so that's the idea that gets the biggest push, pushback. And I, I totally get that one. When I started writing the book, uh, I even kind of thought like, oh, this is weird. This is private information. And I don't know that I did a, a 180 degree turn, but let's call it like a 167 degree turn when I looked at the research and, and the, the companies that do it. And I really have become, I didn't expect to, but I've become an evangelist for that idea. Um, overall, I think there's just a pushback on change. I mean, it's the same thing as in the education yeah. uh, discussion that we just had. I think a lot of people, 
uh, don't want to change because they can point to what they're doing and they can say, well, you know, what we're doing now is, is working. I, you can't see it, but I have air quotes is working. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm willing to accept that, but that, that also means that our definition of working is the two out of 10 people being highly engaged, the 18% engagement number we always hear at Gallup. The idea that, you know, the majority of our people are bored out of their minds. They're not bringing their whole selves and their whole energy to work. And if you want to call that working, like if you, if you want to say what we're doing now is, is good enough, then cool. No argument for me. I'm just not willing to accept that. You know, I'm not willing to accept that only two twenty percent of people get to be fully engaged in their job. I think we can do a lot better than that. Um, part of that is is me now, but part of that is me as a parent mm-hmm. thinking about I have kids that are hitting the workplace in two decades, and the idea that they have a twenty percent chance of finding work that actually leverages their strengths and talents is just despicable to me. And so, hence, uh, you know, here I am on my soapbox trying to change it. So, I mean, that raises uh, the really sort of big question in my mind uh, about why so many people are so dissatisfied with their work. And, you know, I, I, this is something I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder if those of us who create things on the Internet actually perpetuate people's dissatisfaction with their lives uh, by creating what we do and, and having, you know, the narrative that we do when you know, sometimes I, I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, maybe ignorance is bliss. Like if I didn't know about all these different possibilities, I might be better off at certain moments. And I, I'm just so curious to hear what your perspective is on this. Well, so that, so that depends. Um, it, it's sort of like the matrix, yeah. right? Uh, it, if you didn't know, would you be happier? Yes, you would experience the emotion of happiness more often because you didn't know the option. That's the sort of paradox of choice research. Mm-hmm. Would you have, you would also have a decreased shot of reaching sort of your maximal life satisfaction, work satisfaction, right? So it's a trade off. You can, you can experience that emotion of happiness by saying, yeah, this is as good as it gets. Or I can tell you that it can get way better. It just takes a ton of work. And you can experience the frustration, the, the blood, the sweat, the tears, everything that Teddy Roosevelt talked about, about the man in the arena. You can experience that. Or, you can just not know about it and, and be more miserable, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you know, your, your work, my work, all of our work is essentially handing people the blue pill and saying, do, do you want to find out? And I, I fully get it. There are people that would much rather just be uh, – actually, let me, let me back up. There are people that would rather take the other pill. I don't understand why, and I, I refuse to believe that if they fully knew what was available to them and the level of engagement and happiness they could have at work, not even being entrepreneurial, just right. finding an organization that does a better job leveraging their talents, yeah. they would question why any, like you and I, they would question why anyone takes the red pill. You mean the blue pill? <laughs> Whatever. The other way whichever whichever pill it up, keeps but... you plugged into the matrix. Yeah. I honestly like... I didn't even really pay attention to the next two and the, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the second, the second and the third were shit. So. No, they were, and so you know what. And then even even like there's there's a million other sort of films like The Matrix that I've I've watched since then. So you know this, it's, but it's this larger idea of I can I can awaken you to the full spectrum of our reality, or you can you can say ignorance really is bliss when you yeah. don't know about all your options. You're happier with the options you have for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think you, you bring up a really good point, and in my mind, um, taking the red pill is about a willingness to question reality as it is. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the thing that we are taught to do, uh, from a very early age is to choose from the options that are put in front of us and to never question if there might be something better. I mean, I, I, to some extent, uh, the, the sad thing is I think that 
comes from people who weren't willing to question. And yeah, so they, they exactly. bought into that level of, of happiness, et cetera, because so, I mean, and I found this with, with now I found, I find this with students in college. I found this back in my, my prior career, which was a fairly you know desirable gig. People wanted to do it, but didn't want to put in the six to months to a year it took to find the opening in that, in that field. Right. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody's always willing to sort of dream up a better life. Nobody's willing to work for it. Right. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. And, <laughs> and so, um, I, I think there's that, that part too, that, that there's a decent percentage of people who questioned it, found out there was something better, tried to work for it, got their nose bloody and ran home to their comfortable life. Mm-hmm. And, and there, I, uh, to, to even more than the people who don't know, they're probably the ones that propagate this sort of myth that just don't question it because they're, and they think they're doing it in the service of trying to protect you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I want to finish with two final questions. You know, you brought up the matrix. I am curious, um, what book, uh, movie or film or piece of music has profoundly influenced your life that you would, uh, want to share with our audience? Um, so I, I've got to give the, the obvious examples of, so I'm, I'm a Christian. I teach at a Christian university. So obviously the Bible, um, I would, I would actually also say the book of common prayer, which I was not raised Anglican, but it's a, a sequence of scripted things. I think the idea of having repetitive rhythms, you know, other people will talk about meditation, what kind of meditation you do, et cetera. This is, this is very similar to that. This idea that there are, there's a rhythm to your sort of spirituality and a structure to it actually really does help more than the sort of floating around finding what have you, at least for me, um, in a more sort of, uh, businessy sense. Cause I'm sure that's what more people are, are interested in hearing. Cause they're listening to me and I write about business topics. Um, there's a book called the opposable mind by Roger Martin, which if you've never had Roger, uh, on, I don't remember if you have or not is, is so. you sh- I'll, I'll make an introduction if you want. It's a fascinating individual. One of, it's one of my intellectual heroes and the opposable mind actually kind of deals with a lot of the things we're talking about. It deals with this idea that the, the true business leaders that make a huge impact are the ones that are faced with an either or, and find a way to create a new mental model that allows both end. Wow. And really quite a fascinating way to just, when you're, when you see two models that oppose each other, find a way to sort of reconcile. It's kind of that, that George Bernard Shaw quote about like intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing views in your mind and not go crazy. Um, it's all about that and profiles and people who do that. And it's a really fascinating, just fascinating book on this idea that just because you believe this and someone else believes that doesn't actually mean either of you are right. The, the actual right way forward might be to find a way that both of you can win. Wow. Well, I have one last question, which I know you've heard me ask. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's you. I think there's it's probably 7 billion at this point. I don't actually remember from the last numbers I've seen people on the planet. And I think truthfully, what makes someone not unmistakable, what makes someone mistakable is when they try and be something other than them. I'm totally cool with, with looking at three or four different influences and creating a combination of them that is, that is you, but you just trying to be someone else, it does not make you that. I, I had a, a pretty big career sort of breakthrough. And I, I used to tell people that, you know, I was trying to be the next so-and-so. And when it finally sort of broke through that, like, forget that, you're just trying to be the first you. I had a, a much bigger amount, of, a much greater increase in success in my career, et cetera. So I think it's that. It's totally cool to imitate people as you learn and, and have your influences. But at a certain point, you, you cannot be unmistakable unless you're actually you. Hmm. Well, uh, this has just been uh, awesome, packed with so much stuff and uh, covered so much ground. And uh, I I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. 
Oh, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it was sort of a mini rant on everything in the world that we, <laughs> yeah. that we nailed into an hour. So sorry about the ranting part of it. But no, it was absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next time on The Unmistakable Creative. Over the last 16 years, it's amazing. Um, I saw early on when I started to gift with no strings attached, I saw people's responses to it. When I gifted like Paul, and I would see people light up and they'd be like, why are you doing this? Like, what do you like? Are you going to ask me for something? I'm like, no, no, no strings attached. And people would like light up. And then I would see doors open six months later, in some cases, six years later. And for me, at least it became addictive. John Rulin joins us to talk about the art of strategic gifting. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.